We, <laughs> good morning. We come to the end of the liturgical year. It ends not with a whimper, but rather with a bang, because today is the celebration of Christ the King. Today we rejoice in the fact that God reigns now, even though the circumstances of the world may suggest otherwise. It's the last word we speak before the new church year is upon us when we step into Advent next Sunday. The idea of Christ the King may feel foreign or even for some uncomfortable. We Americans famously threw off the rule of a king and created a new form of government. We associate a king with privilege, unchecked authority, vast wealth, and extravagance. We imagine a king as one isolated from his people, his or her people, king or queen, and making decisions and ruling by royal edict. This sounds nothing like Jesus. But remember, Jesus was not what the world expected, and he inaugurated a kingdom that no one could have anticipated. Our scripture this morning plunges us into an event we commonly associate with Holy Week. Christ has been arrested due to the plotting of his enemies since the religious leaders could not put anyone to death. They bring Jesus to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in the hope that he will do their dirty work for them. The scene that takes place takes place early in the morning in Pilate's palace. The prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth, is brought to him. Pilate has heard of Jesus and is now curious to make a personal evaluation of him in order to investigate whether Jesus has brought to him and he's been brought to, to trial justly or not. What follows is a very strange and convoluted conversation about kingship and truth and a contrast between this world and a world that is to come. Let's turn our attention now to John chapter 18. Verse, verses 33 through 37. <laughs> then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almost high, everlasting Lord, mighty and lifted up. 
Show us again the beauty and power of your rule. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. Would like to invite us to sit for a moment with this whole notion of kings. I've been mindful of kings and queens more than I typically am recently because I spent a good portion of September in Great Britain where Queen Elizabeth's portrait graces every coin and banknote. And I have been binge watching The Crown on Netflix. The basic theme of the epic novel, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, is there is a true king, but he is hidden in the north. When he shows up, everything will be healed. The actual record of human kings is abysmal. It's a record populated by tyranny, tragedy, and slavery. Most every monarchy has been toppled and put into its place democracy. In spite of that, we remain fascinated with kings and queens. In countries with some sort of royal line, people are obsessed with royalty. With Harry and Meghan's recent marriage, the birth of Charlie and, or excuse me, Archie, and current troubles with the press, we watch and we wait for the next piece of news about the young royals. In America, we take athletes, billionaires, and media stars, and we crown them. They hold court. We adore them. Why do we constantly give ourselves over to kings and queens? Why do we feel a need to create them and to crown them? The reason is we were built for a king. We need a king. Tim Keller explains, there's a memory trace in the human race of a great king, an ancient king who ruled with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory. We were built to submit to that king, to stand before and adore and serve and know that king. That's what the Bible says. The Bible also says, if you reject that king, you will find a king. You will find someone to adore. You will find saviors. It's the desire to have someone sweep you off your feet romantically and be your king. It's the belief that if we could just get the right political party into the White House, then we will be saved. A false king. The message of Christianity is that there is one true king, the Lord's anointed one, a king above all kings. There is a king behind all kings, Christ the king who is the hero of the whole story. Yet the dominant worldview tends to resonate more with the concluding lines of the poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. How frequently are we tempted to believe that we are in control of our own destiny, that it's all up to me, that I am the crucial factor. My accomplishments, my courage, my charming personality, my 
will, my successes. That I am in charge and ultimately the master and the hero of my own story. In taking one look at this poor rabbi from Galilee, Pilate likely found it difficult to believe that he was a rebel leader. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He asks this because that is the charge that is brought against him. Jesus responds to Pilate's question with a question who really is on trial here. The title of king is loaded with political meaning for the Romans who have little to zero tolerance for any king but Caesar. Pilate likely considers himself to be the most powerful in control person in Jerusalem, staying in control, staying in power will be Pilate's goal. Pilate now asks a more practical question. What did you do? Jesus answers, my kingdom is not rooted in this world. Drawing attention to his kingdom's uniqueness, Jesus insists that his kingdom's otherworldly nature where things are very different from the way they are in Caesar's world, that is not the same kind of realm that you are thinking of, Pilate. In Jesus' realm, the poor were not inferior, they were blessed. In that realm, peace was maintained by turning the other cheek and praying for your enemies rather than eliminating them. It's important to see that Jesus' statement should not be misunderstood as meaning that the kingdom is not active in the world or has anything else to do with this world, but it is not a kingdom that is built on power-seeking at all costs and on violence like most kingdoms of this world. But rather, it's an upside-down kingdom where power is constantly abandoned in favor of love. Pilate presses further, looking for a confession. So you're telling me that you are some kind of a king. Jesus essentially says, king is your word, not mine. You could almost feel sorry for Pilate in this story. Having said what his kingdom is not, Jesus then plunges into the heart of the matter, proclaiming the truth, and being the truth are what makes Jesus a king. For this he was born. Jesus says, my whole reason for being born and my whole reason for coming into the world is this, to bear witness to the truth. Truth here is a theological word. Truth is what we see when we see God. Not only does Jesus testify to the true things that he has seen and learned in his Father's presence, but he himself is truth. The irony is that the truth is standing right in front of him, but Pilate cannot see it. He is in the presence of royalty, but he does not have eyes to see. As a king, Jesus is in complete control of the situation. He remains in control of his death to the very end. He determines when the mission is finished and when it is time to lay down his life we behold the ruler of the universe whose reign is marked by a sacrificial love 
for all creation. Two weeks ago, I had the joy of being a part of a nine-person team who traveled to Belize on a vision trip. Covenant has a wonderful partnership with a church there in Belize City. This is where our middle and high school students and families have been going on several spring breaks these recent years. This will happen again this upcoming March. For two days, the nine of us explored ways that we can further partner with the community of Belize in order to be a part, a continuing part of Christ's ministry of hope and healing. We are excited to see how God might call us to serve in a new way in that part of God's world. The nine of us who went, we were humbled and truly impacted by the extraordinary, extraordinary Christian servants and leaders that we met and listened to who are doing incredible ministry with limited resources in a variety of settings, a a prison in an orphanage for girls in our sister church there in Belize City in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Belize City in a hospital with hospice care and with girls who have been rescued from human trafficking. Leaders all summoned by God and living a genuine love that shows up in the place of real need. On the second afternoon, four of us then had the privilege of making home visits to three hospice patients. I got to be a part of that team, and it's when I met Wilbur and Bernadette. Wilbur is a double amputee. Both legs amputated due to diabetes, who has been confined to his bed for over one year. There's a metal rod that hangs across the length of his bed, bolted above him with ropes hanging down in order to help Wilbur shift himself around the bed. He uses that bar to do sit-ups and strengthening exercises in order to lift himself off the bed. He can move around in the bed, but he cannot get out of the bed. Wilbur is unable to get out of his bed because he is so large. There is a wheelchair right there next to his bed, but he is unable to transfer to it. The last time he got out of his house over a year ago, it took six ambulance people to carry him, a traumatic event because they almost dropped him as they were trying to get him down the stairs. For Wilbur and Bernadette, they live in a tiny little wooden framed house on the second story. It's about 300 square feet with two small rooms and a little kitchenette. I'm not sure they had electricity. Electricity is sometimes shared through extension cords with neighbors. Wilbur has one window. That's his window to the outside world. You can imagine how important that window is to him. By his side is his wife, Bernadette, a wonderfully delightful, petite, and spirited Woman, she takes immaculate care of Wilbur. Wilbur has every reason to be bitter. Can you imagine being stuck, confined, imprisoned in your bed for a year, over a year, 
Bernadette has every reason to be bitter. Their life together is filled with profoundly difficult challenges. Yet there was the presence of joy, and they are serving others. It was powerful when we were visiting with Wilbur to turn to our side and to see Bernadette greeting someone who had come to the door with a cup of cold water. She had so little, giving it to one who was seeking shelter and help. At one point in our conversation, Wilbur, with tears brimming in his eyes, he spoke these words, I am a broken man, but I don't give up. Because someone cares for me, he is my father. Whenever you see this kind of radical trust and devotion, the kingdom of God is near. I wonder, how does Christ being king make a difference in your day-to-day living? With whatever obstacle you now face or will face, can you trust that the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, that he is not dormant but continues to act, for he is forever the living God? God calls us to believe, friends, without seeing and always to make room for hope. Hold on to hope, people of God, because God is not done yet. Someone is in charge. The throne is not vacant. Authority is associated with the one who sits on the throne. I've shared with you before my family's New Year's Eve tradition. We go to a restaurant, and after ordering, we, while we're awaiting our meal, we take turns around the table, and we reflect upon the year prior. We will do this again in five weeks. We celebrate victories and travel and experiences and new hobbies and renewed discipline. We lament loss. We talk about transitions to new jobs, schools, and homes. We've highlighted marching band and middle school getting a driver's license and braces. We had years of celebrating mom being cancer-free and then years of journeying together with heavy hearts after her cancer returned. One year, two family members did the hard work of forgiveness with each other while all the rest of us were in the bathroom. There have been hurricanes, the death of pets, and a surgically repaired heart. Two years ago, my sister was worried about losing her job, and my nephew was having a challenging start to college. We gather all of this up. Each New Year's Eve, and in our own different and unique ways, we marvel at God's care. We marvel at how God has provided for us in unmistakable ways. Not always in the ways that we hoped for, but there's a very real sense that we are being cared for by another. We help each other to remember this. It's a family tradition that we look forward to. It's a spiritual practice for us, really, although none of us would ever define it in that way. Memory kindles hope. 
Scripture tells us that we are a forgetful people and encourages us to have a really good memory. There's something about my family ritual that helps me to remember God's faithfulness and to affirm that Christ is king, ruling and reigning and mighty to save. As we look back on God's faithfulness in the past, it helps me to move toward the future and to believe that God will not abandon me and those that I love in our tomorrows. I encourage you this week, sometime this week, to take a little time to reflect on the year prior, to think about God's faithfulness and God's care for you and those you love, and to give thanks. Back to our visit with Wilbur and Bernadette. At the end of our time together, double amputee, confined to his bed, joy on his face, Wilbur. He suggested that we sing and praise God together, which is what we did. We sang the doxology. We sang another praise song. We prayed and eventually hearted with our hearts stirred and our faith renewed. Friends, that is the point of Christ the King. We worship and we give thanks for God's rule in the world and we joyfully trust and submit to God's rule as a community who are dependent upon Jesus, the hero of the story. Every single thing must bow. We need a king. Thankfully, we have a king. Jesus the king, the risen conquering king who continues to be our advocate every day of our lives. We are built to adore and serve and know this king. We will be invited to prepare him room and to make space in our lives to encounter the king during Advent. Friends, today is a day for rejoicing and feasting, for tasting and delighting in God's presence. What a great day and a great way to begin Thanksgiving week. We have so very much to be thankful for. Christ is king. Oh, come, let us adore him. Would you pray with me? Oh, living God, we place our faith in you once again. Help us to remember the past, to remember how you rescued us and fought battles for us, provided and cared for us and for those that we love. Lord, we want to have good memories and to bear witness to your activity and love that all the world will know that there is a living God. We pray for ourselves and for those beside us that we will encounter you this Thanksgiving and in the new year and now at your table. All praise and honor and glory belong to you and to you alone. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people together we say, amen.